In a world where we experience economic turmoil, grief, poverty, and crime, we are not consumed by the flames, but rather we use those flames to light our path toward a brighter future. Through our faith, we learn to receive the strength and resilience we need to survive and thrive in the midst of life's greatest challenges. So let us be like the fire that burns hot and bright, never letting the world's darkness extinguish our inner flame. Let us draw upon the unshakable resilience that comes from Jesus alone and emerge from the trials of life stronger and more resilient than ever before. Well, good morning. It is good. I heard this. Good morning to this group over here that's sleeping, apparently. Good morning, you guys. There we go. All right, it's good to have you all here. And those of you online, uh, glad that you're with us as well. I want to say thank you to those of you who came out Wednesday night for our celebration. It was a great, uh, great barbecue, great weather. And uh, also, you had a chance to cast your vote. So I want to just say uh, thank you. The budget passed unanimously. Uh, very grateful for that. I'm not sure if that's ever happened, a 100% unanimous vote on the, on the budget. But here's the cool thing. Our government's trying to figure out debt ceilings, and we're 100% debt-free, so we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. That's very, very cool. It also allows us to make uh, a bigger impact in the world uh, with the, the resources that we are stewarding. Also, um, all of our uh, elders were affirmed for another year, and I just want to thank you for that. I just want to say the group of elders that we have, these men and women, they love Jesus. They love this church. They're unified. I am so privileged to be able to work with and for them. Uh, it's amazing. They pray for our church. There's a Every day of the week, one of our elders is praying and fasting for you, for the ministries of our church, and just so grateful for that group. Uh, we are truly blessed there. We are in this series called The Resilient, uh, talking about uh, living a life that is resilient in the difficulties of life, is to be able to actually live above those circumstances. A couple of months ago, I heard a, a podcast. It was an interview with a woman named Jennifer Cohen. She had written a book. I, I haven't read the book. I'm not endorsing the book. But the interview, um, in this interview, she made a statement, and I knew that we were doing this series, and I thought, oh, i got to write that one down. She made this statement. She said, I have a master's degree in failing, <laughs> but a PhD in getting back up. Like, that's resilience. Yeah, there's stuff that takes me down, but you know what? I always get back up. And I may have that at a master's level, but I'm a PhD when it comes to getting back up, that resilient. And I thought, that's so great, and it's so picturesque, but it's not really original to her. Because in Proverbs 24, verse 16, it says, though the righteous fall seven times, they rise back up. They get back up. They're resilient. And that's what we're longing to become is people who are the resilient ones. We're also talking about this whole thing of wisdom from Babylon and looking at some people that were in a season, a difficult time of life, and they were resilient. And I thought there's no way you can do a series with a subtitle, you know, Wisdom from Babylon, without somewhere in that series quoting Steve Martin's lyrics to King Tut. Because there's that line that says, King Tut was born in Arizona, moved to Babylonia. Born in Arizona, got a condo made of stona, King Tut. Now we're complete. Now, here's the deal. The, the people that we're looking at from Babylon, they didn't move there to get a condo made of stone. In fact, they were, their city was seized. They were captured from there. They were taken against their will. Things done to them that they didn't want. They're in a situation they would not have chosen. It's difficult. There's hardships. And there's tens of thousands of them. And for some of these people, 
most of them, this is not just an event. In fact, it's not just a season of life. For some of them, this is the rest of their life. This is their new normal. They will never go back to the way it was before. They'll never go back to Jerusalem. And what we find is in the midst of these hardships in this season, in this life that is not fun, some of them, four in particularly uh, that we're looking at, are remarkably resilient. And we've been looking at their lives and how did they, how did they navigate these waters so that we can learn from them apply it to our lives, and be resilient in our own Babylon. So these four were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they're given Babylonian names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, as we've talked about, while they're in exile, and it wasn't just the four of them. As I said, there were tens of thousands that were taken from Judah over to Babylon. While they're in exile... Jeremiah, who is the prophet of God, who was not exiled, probably because Nebuchadnezzar did not see him of adding any value at all, so they left him behind. He writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And the letter is intended to give them encouragement, to strengthen them, to, to bolster their, their spirits. But it wasn't just a, hey, hope things get better, Hallmark kind of card from Jeremiah. He's not just being a pen pal. Remember, he is the prophet of God, and he has received Word from the Lord to pass on to the exile. So he's just the messenger. This isn't he, these aren't his words. They're God's words. And they're, they're meant to encourage these people who are in a very difficult season. We've looked at some of this before. Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. Jeremiah is not saying it. The Lord says it. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. To which some of them are probably saying, and that's supposed to encourage us? <laughs> I mean, that's seven decades from now. But God is making it really clear. I've made a promise, and I'm good with this promise. You can count on me. I am being gracious to you, and the story is not over. It's not done. It's not you went off to exile in Babylon and everyone lived horribly ever after the end. No, no, no. The story is still being written and my story is not finished and your story is not finished either. And maybe we need that reminder when we're in these moments, when we're in these seasons of our own Babylon. So I love what Louis Giglio said. He said this, God's plans for your life exceed the circumstances of your day. Because what happens, at least for me, is we might get into some difficult season and, and we get this blinders on and this microcosm that this is what life is and maybe it's a worst case scenario and we think this is horrible and it hasn't been resolved by Tuesday and this is the way it's always going to be. Not necessarily. Here's part of our problem. We want things done on a stopwatch kind of a rate. Sometimes God uses a calendar and it may take a little bit longer, but he's not done. This story is not complete. This is not the end of the story. This might be a chapter. It might not even be a chapter. It might just be a scene, but God is still working. And then he gives, as, as Jeremiah is writing this, he gives the verse that is the most familiar, the most famous, the most memorized, the most loved verse out of the entire book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has, what, 52 chapters. This single verse is known by more people than any other verse in Jeremiah. Some of you know it well. Some of you have it on your walls. He says this, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, this is right on the heels of him saying, in 70 years, I'm going to fulfill my gracious promise and bring you back to Jerusalem. So it could be easy to think, well, his plans for my future and my prosperity is 70 years from now, and there is part of that. But I would like to offer a suggestion, a possibility for you to consider that would change everything. When he says, I know the plans I have for you, on the heels of saying 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. What if, what if this is not only a future prediction, but also a present promise? That yes, there's some things I'm going to do in 70 years from now, but not just then. These plans that I have for you, the plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope and future, that's not just someday when you get back to Jerusalem. That's, as Jesus Jones sang in the early 90s, right here, right now. So there's no better place I'd rather be right here because I'm up to something here. That God is saying, I didn't have these plans for you. Now we're going to push pause. We'll revisit them in 70 years. We're going to put them in mothballs. We're going to put them on the back burner. We'll cross that bridge in seven years. You've got to go do your thing. We'll get back to this. No, he's saying, I still have plans for you. And I'm still working my plan. And it's a good plan. And you don't have to wait until after this Babylon season for you to experience this. So he says this in Jeremiah 29.4, if you back up a few verses. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. No, no, wait a second. It was Nebuchadnezzar that came in and seized the, the, the city and carried them into exile. And yet now God is saying that he was the one that carried us into exile. But well, I thought it was Nebuchadnezzar. And I think God would say, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar did that, but he was just a tool. He is a tool in more ways than one. But he's a tool in my hands. And so I utilized him for my purposes because I have a plan. And remember, I warned you that if you didn't get things straight, that this would happen. I told you that, you know, as a nation, I told you that years ago. And my plan is that I love you and I want us to be back in a right covenant relationship where there's good, you know, connection there. That's my plan. And it's a good one for you as well. And so I, yes, used Nebuchadnezzar, but I carried you into exile. And not only that, I carried you into exile. I never abandoned you. Just because there's a bit of a time out for you, a corrective measure, I haven't given up on you. I didn't leave you. I didn't say, oh, bummer for you guys. Hey, see ya. I'm hanging here in J-Town. Have fun in Babylon. We'll see you in seven years, right? If you get work, I'm here. No, he said, I was with you the whole way. I carried you. I never left you. I walked with you. In fact, when you walked across that desert and you turned around and you saw one set of footprints, they're going to turn that to a poem in the 1980s and you're going to all have it decoupaged and on your wall. Yeah, there was one set of footprints because I carried you into exile. I was with you the whole way. I have this plan. And he says, let me kind of tip my hand a little bit of this plan. Verse 7, he says, also, while you're there, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which, and here it is again, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So I want you to seek 
the peace. I want you to pray for the prosperity. I want you to work towards prosperity of even this wicked Babylonian city. Because the plans I have for you to prosper you, it's connected. As they prosper, you will prosper as well. This must have been mind-boggling. But for God's plan to prosper them and give them a hope in the future was connected to the prosperity of Babylon. And what if? What if God's plan was not only to prosper them, but there was a subplot to this whole story that they were not even aware of? That God was doing something that they wouldn't see for years, but he was orchestrating things, and God was up to something in Babylon. If that's the case, if in this season, this Babylon season, God was actually still putting together a plan, then suddenly for them, there's a reason for them to be there. There's purpose in this difficulty. There's, there's meaning that can be found. And when you find meaning and purpose in a circumstance or a situation, then you can live a resilient life. This is the essence of the findings of Viktor Frankl. I, I think I mentioned Viktor Frankl two, three year, uh, weeks ago. Um, Viktor Frankl, I reread his book, a uh, classic little book, Man's Search for Meaning in preparation for this series. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist from Vienna. He was also Jewish. He spent some time in the uh, concentration camps of the Nazis, spent some time in Auschwitz as well as Dachau. And, uh, and in the first part of his book, he just talks about their experience, which was so, I remember the first time I read this. I was raised with Hogan's Heroes. I mean, that was like summer camp compared to the reality of what, what these uh, folks in, experienced. And he writes about the horrific, horrible, horrible circumstances in these concentration camps. So bad, in fact, that in their lodging facilities, when one of their mates was asleep and it was obvious that he was having a horrible nightmare, thrashing about in his bed, moaning, saying things, and you could tell that, so, that he was having a nightmare. For most of us, if we had a, a friend, a child, a roommate, a spouse, and they're sleeping and they're having a nightmare, we'll, we'll shake them. Hey, 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 wake up. You're, you're having, it's just a dream. It's just a dream. He said things were so bad that if one of their friends was having a nightmare, they would not wake him up from his nightmare, knowing that no matter how bad the nightmare was that he was experiencing, to wake him up would be to remind him of how horrible, more horrible than his nightmare, the reality that he lives in is. It was that bad. And the harsh, meaningless labor that they would have to do and how they hardly had any clothes and they were freezing and how they were starved to death, just watered down soup with an occasional pea or bean in it, so much so that they would be like skeletons with just skin draped over them. When the subcutaneous fat layers disappeared, the body begins to digest its own protein and begins to cannibalize itself just to survive. And in the midst of these horrific conditions, this horrible situation, when there's really not a lot of hope because of those that are taken off to the gas chambers, Frankel, as a psychiatrist, would observe what was it that caused some people to thrive and to flourish and to, and to be resilient in this situation and others to cave and to die. And it really shaped his whole idea, his whole philosophy that ended up being what he calls logotherapy. And one of his conclusions he writes about logotherapy is, is this. He writes, life is not primarily a quest for pleasure as Freud believed. That was Freud's whole thing. It's all about pleasure. Or a quest for power as Alfred Adler taught. But a quest for meaning. 
the greatest task for any person is to find meaning in his or her life. That is logotherapy in a nutshell, to help people find meaning and purpose. And when you have meaning and purpose, then there's a resilience. So as he was in these concentration camps for himself and for his other fellow prisoners, one of his goals was to help them be finding meaning in the suffering. Not that the suffering, the suffering in and of itself was meaningless, but in the midst of that, to find a purpose, a reason to live, some meaning, then they could rise above it and they would be resilient. And he says, it really doesn't even matter what that meaning is if there's something to live for. And so he would frequently quote Nietzsche where he says, he who has a why to live for will endure just about anyhow. There's this why. Why are we doing this? Because it wasn't about the intensity of the suffering or the hardship or the, the difficulties that would take guys out. It was when they came to this conclusion, believing there's no meaning and there's no purpose, they would quit. And those who study this will tell you that in most suicide notes, whether they were successful or not, most suicide notes don't talk about the financial setback, the physical pain, the rejection, or the hardship. Most suicide notes talk about it seems pointless to go on. There's no reason. There's no hope. Why should I try? It's this lack of meaning. It's what Viktor Frankl would call an existential vacuum. There's just nothing in it. It sucks all of them. Now, I know that's kind of heavy and kind of dark. So let me try to lighten it up with an illustration. About 30 years ago, there was a movie that came out. Some of you saw this movie. It's called Groundhog Day. Bill Murray? Sounds like about five of you saw that movie. <laughs> All right. Groundhog Day. Bill Murray. Bill Murray is this uh, self-centered, cynical, kind of arrogant weatherman. And he's sent to Puxatani to cover, you know, the, the groundhog looking at his shadow. And, uh, and he's there kind of against his will. He wakes up on Groundhog Day, Sonny and Cher on the clock radio singing, I got you, babe. And he starts his day. Well, instead of going home that night with different circumstances, he's stuck there in Puxatawney. The next morning, when the alarm clock goes off, it's Sonny and Cher singing, I got you, babe. And as he quickly finds out, he begins to relive Groundhog Day. Here's an interesting thing. In our, in our vernacular now, when there's some repeated event, we refer to it as, it was kind of like a Groundhog Day. Before this movie, that was never used in that context. So this movie shaped our culture. <laughs> so he's stuck in this, this deja vu time loop where every day he lives the same day over again and starts over the next morning with Sonny and Cher waking him up saying, I've got you, babe. And he quickly realizes there is no lasting consequence to any choice, any action, anything that he says so he can do whatever he wants because the next day it's a clean slate. And so he kind of embarks on this kind of this self-indulgent jerk-like life where he's just finding pleasure and it's all about him. And the more he does that day after day, he goes deeper and deeper into despair and depression to the point where Eventually, he begins to try to kill himself, and even if he's successful, he finds that he's killed himself only to wake up the next morning to Shani and Cher singing, I got you, babe. But something happens 
because of a woman, he begins to make this character transformation. And instead of approaching every day with this self-indulgent, who cares what happens, he begins to serve. And since he already knows what's going to happen every day, he's able to serve. He's able to catch the little girl that's falling out of the tree so she doesn't break her leg. He's able to change that tire day after day. He's able to help that couple out. He's able to help that man who's choking, saving his life every single day. He begins to serve others. He begins to have a meaning and a purpose. In life. See, this movie is far more deep than we took on the surface level. And in so doing with that meaning and purpose, suddenly the despair goes away. And he's transformed. It's a character transformation. Which is kind of interesting when Jesus said, if you want to know true greatness, it's found in serving. And that our attitude should be like Christ, who is a servant, and to find this, this meaning and this purpose in life. And so he does. And, and, and um, Walter Seligman, in his book, Authentic Happiness, he talks about the difference between just going after something fun and going after a, a, an act of kindness and serving. He said, the fun ends up with pleasure, which is short-lived and fleeting. But the act of kindness and serving becomes fulfillment that is lasting and meaningful. And so you see this meaning and this, this purpose. Now, some of you are saying, okay, Bob, you've taken this from Auschwitz to Puxatani." From concentration camps to Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray. Can we get to the Bible? Yes. <laughs> Daniel chapter 4. We've been looking at this every week. We've been looking at a lesson from each of the chapters of Daniel. And it's not a study on the book of Daniel. It's more a study in how can we be resilient, learning from the characters of Daniel. And yet again today, today is not a deep study on Daniel chapter 4. It's a fantastic story. I would encourage you to read it on your own. If you get bored in the sermon, this is a great opportunity for you to spend some time in the Word of God. But I would prefer you do it later this afternoon. But in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of the focal point. And Nebuchadnezzar has this story where he's, he's uh, in power, he's very uh, narcissistic, egotistical, he has a great fall, then it's a story of redemption, it's beautiful. If you don't want to read Daniel chapter 4, if you'll watch the Disney movie, The Emperor's New Groove, this is from uh, 20 years ago, and, and actually Ron Pye told me this years ago, that The Emperor's New Groove is basically the story of Daniel chapter 4 in a Disney version. The emperor, Cusco, he's, he's this self-centered, very, you know, egotistical emperor. Turn of events, he becomes a llama of all things, but he's still very self-centered, still self-focused. And then when he hits rock bottom, he begins to have this character transformation and he's restored back. It's beautiful. It's, it's Daniel chapter four. It's, it's amazing. Okay, so, so in Daniel chapter four, we will see that in this, in this Babylon experience, God is up to something in Babylon. If you were with us last week, I mentioned that most scholars believe that between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3, there's a 20-year gap. They're just like, here's something that happened. 20 years later, here's something that happened. Most scholars believe that between Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 4, there's another 20 to 25-year gap. So when we've started this series, these four guys were probably about 17 years old. Now 20, 20 plus another 25 or so. So... Daniel, at this point, is probably about my age, in the prime of life, <laughs> 59, filled with vigor and vitality. Okay, so, and you guys laugh at me. You laugh, Jeff. You're, you'll get there one of these days. So he's 59 years old. He's been in exile now for over four decades, 40 years 
He's not been able to go home. He's not been with his family. He's been called a name he doesn't like. He's had things done to him, all of these stuff. And now he's been serving this pagan king for 40 years. How could he do that? How could he be resilient for 40 years? I wonder if it goes back to that letter from Jeremiah where he took very seriously the words of the Lord I've got a plan. And part of the plan is for you. And part of the plan is for Babylon. And this plan is to prosper you and to give you a hope and a future. And it's connected to how well Babylon prospers, which doesn't make sense, but he trusts God because God is up to something. In Babylon. So in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And it bothers him, troubles him deeply. And he, doesn't, he knows it's not a good dream, but he doesn't know what it means. So he calls in all of his magicians and all of his soothsayers and all of his seers and all of his, you know, occult guys and says, here's my dream, what's it mean? None of them can interpret it. I don't know if he remembered or someone reminded him that there was a similar event that had happened 40 years earlier. For us, it was two weeks ago. Pastor Brian taught about a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and no one could answer it. And he was going to kill, if you were here, you remember that? He was going to kill everybody because they couldn't answer it. They couldn't even tell him what the dream was. He couldn't even remember what it was. But Daniel came through. Now, 40 years later, he has another dream. No one can answer it. And maybe one of his, one of his aides says, hey, this is like Groundhog Day. This is deja vu all over again. We've already lived this once before. Remember when you had that other dream and you remember Daniel? However it is, no one can, can interpret this dream. So he brings Daniel in and this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. Daniel chapter four, verse nine. I said, Belteshazzar, which was the Babylonian name. Daniel went by Daniel, but that's what they all called him. Chief of the magicians. So he's been elevated to a pretty high position here. I know that the spirit of the holy gods, lowercase g, plural, that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even know who Yahweh is. He's still got this polytheistic idea of all these different gods. Different nations have different gods. Different weather patterns have different gods. And he says, but there's something about this Daniel that's different. He's got a connection with these gods that no one else has. He's got something there. And so he says, Daniel, I know that you can interpret this dream. Now, we could go into a lot, a lot of the details about the dream. And again, we should that. Actually, it would be a great sermon, um, but you're not going to hear that one today. That, somewhere else down the road, not in this series, but somewhere maybe may soon. But, but all that. What I want to focus in on is Daniel still being a key figure 40 years into exile. Why didn't he just quit? Why didn't he just give up, give in, say enough of this? Why should I keep doing this? You see that he's been from a young man, from a, from a teenage boy, and now to a, a mature 59-year-old man, he's been there under, under these circumstances that he would not choose. But there was never a resignation to his plight in Babylon. Instead, there was a designation to God's plan in Babylon. God had said, 
I want you to work for, pray for the prosperity of this nation. And I think he does. Because I think one of the keys, I know one of the keys to resilience is agency versus the helplessness. When you say, there are some things that I can control. There are some things that I can do. Uh, again, with uh, Seligman in, in the whole concept of, of learned helplessness is, I'm just a victim. I've got no control over this. There's nothing I can do. Just this resignation. As opposed to saying, no, no, no. Th- there is something that we can do. I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with a very, very um, beautiful, powerful prayer. It's, it's very common in recovery circles, but it's, it's, um, its validity goes far beyond recovery circles. It's referred to often as the serenity prayer. It was originally written by Reinhold Niebuhr, and most people only know the first couple of lines of it. There, there's more to it, but the first couple of lines are this. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This is about agency. This is about recognizing there are some things that are out of our control. There are some things that I can do nothing about. It's not denying that reality. Daniel recognized, hey, I was taken from my home in Jerusalem. I can't do anything about that. That was against my will. I'm in Babylon. I'm not allowed to go back. There's nothing I can do about that. Nebuchadnezzar is a narcissistic, egotistical leader. I can't change him. He makes laws that I don't agree with. He asked me to do things that I don't want to do. He's done things to me that I didn't want done. I can't control any of that. But I do have agency. There are some things I can control. A friend of mine uh, said a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago, there are two things that you can always control. Your attitude and your effort. And this is in any arena of life. Relationships, finances, career, spiritual health, your, your weight, exercise. Any area of life, you have absolute control over your attitude and your effort. And I think we see with Daniel that he says, that's what I can do. I can choose my attitude here in Babylon. I can choose my effort to fulfill what God said he wanted me to do. I can pray for the prosperity of Babylon. I can work towards that prosperity. And God also said that he would prosper me. Did it happen? It did. Uh, Let's backtrack a couple of chapters. Daniel chapter 248. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Hold on to that. We may come back to that at the end. Because of Daniel's attitude and his effort, God said, I have a plan for you. And he prospered him. Now, back to the story in Daniel chapter 4. So Nebuchadnezzar tells him his dream. Daniel knows the interpretation of the dream, and it's not a good one. In fact, you see kind of a reticence on his part to even share the interpretation of the dream. When he says, oh, king, how I wish this dream was about your enemies. I don't want to tell you. You think about this. He's going into the presence of the most powerful man on the face of the planet. Nebuchadnezzar has unchallenged authority in this world. He is also not given to take kindly to words that are against him. And he's very quick to throw people like into fiery furnaces and such. 
So for Daniel to come in and share the true interpretation, it's almost like the truth, you can't handle the truth. And it's going to be frightening because it might cost him a life. What we see here is Daniel not only tells him the interpretation, but takes this unbelievably bold step forward in the midst of it and afterwards. Because he realizes that he has been given the opportunity in this moment to tell the most powerful man on the planet about the most high God over all of creation. So he hesitantly, apologetically says, King, I wish this was not about you, but here's the interpretation. Read it for yourself. At the end of that, he says this, and this was the bold part. Verse 27, chapter 4, verse 27. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. He was not asked for his advice. And I don't know if you've ever given advice that you were not asked for. It's usually not received well. And especially if it's an egotistical, narcissistic king that loves to kill people that cross him. This was a bold, risky move. I'm going to tell you what you've not asked for. Please accept my advice, and it's pretty strong advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Now, he is taking his life into his own hands by saying these things. But maybe, just maybe, Daniel says, I have this moment with an audience of the most powerful man to tell him about the most high God. Maybe everything that's happened in the last 40 years have been leading up to this moment. That all of that was about this moment. Push pause there. 60 years later, there's going to be a young Jewish beauty princess a little gal named Esther, raised by her uncle Mordecai. And she's going to be given a very similar circumstance with King Xerxes. And she's scared to death. And her uncle says to her these words, who knows but that you were born for such a time as this. That this is your divine moment. This is the reason you even exist. And this young, beautiful little princess has this resolve then I'll go, and if I die, then I die. And maybe she has that because she heard about what Daniel had done 60 years earlier. That he says, maybe all that I've gone through has led up to this point where I can share with this king. And maybe, just maybe, God is up to something in Babylon that I'm not even aware of. Now, here's what I want to bring this back to us. Is that when we're in our Babylon seasons, when we have these events, these, these hardships, difficulties, and stuff we wouldn't choose, whatever it is, that in the midst of those, will we, like Daniel, trust in our sovereign God? Trust in our sovereign God that he's still in control. Uh, R.C. Sproul, when he would talk about 
the sovereignty of God, he would often use the, the uh, kind of metaphor of the invisible hand of God. The invisible hand that is always working. The invisible hand that's always moving. The invisible hand that's always orchestrating. The invisible hand that is still in control. And people talk about the providential hand of God is, is the hand inside the glove of human activity. Oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And God says, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, you are. And do we trust God that he's still at work? All right, so back to our story. Daniel gives him his advice. He doesn't kill Daniel. He dismisses him. Again, you see the patience and the grace of God. God gives him an entire year. He doesn't renounce his wicked ways. And so there's this spiral, this downfall. This, this is where it becomes like, like the movie of, of, the, uh, of the, uh, the Emperor's New Groove. Because he is reduced to an animal, not a llama, but these claw-like fingernails and living out eating grass. And there's a, a mental illness that comes over him. And he's humiliated and he loses his power and he loses his influence and he loses everything. He is at the rock bottom as this animal. He's no longer a human um, he's just this creature. And in that depth of that, he recognizes maybe for the first time, I'm not God. And he looks up to God and it's a beautiful story of redemption and grace because when he humbles himself, God restores him. And this is what he says about God. Daniel chapter four, verse 35, about God. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth, that was him. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? This invisible hand of our sovereign God, this gentle hand of God, this firm hand of God, this good hand of God that is in control. In the last verse of the chapter, in the last verse of his life, we read where there is such a change in his life. He's been so narcissistic. It's all about I, Nebuchadnezzar. But look how it ends. 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar. And this time it's not about him. Praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Not just the king of Judah. Not just the king of the Jews. The king that transcends nationalities. Because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And then it's a little personal footnote. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. See, when God carried the Jewish folks into exile, he had a plan for them. That they would be stored to a right relationship with God. But maybe there was a subplot. Because it wasn't just about his people, the Jewish people from Judah. But that God even cared about the wicked Babylonians. And what better way for them to hear the truth about him than his people to be there. And that he even cared about old Nebuchadnezzar. That his life could be redeemed. And the goodness of God orchestrating all of that over the course of 40, 45 years and all that and to see God's hand at work in the midst of it all. 
Because God is up to something in Babylon. And maybe when we're going through our Babylons and we plead with God to remove this, or why did this happen? And the honesty is beautiful. Biblical heroes have done this all throughout Scripture. But to also trust that the invisible hand of God is at work. And could it be, speculation, could it be this is why Daniel never went back to Jerusalem? Because it appears that when Zerubbabel took a crew back to rebuild the temple, Daniel could have gone, but did not. And later Ezra would take a a group back. Daniel may have been dead. And when Nehemiah went back to build the walls, he may have been dead. But, but an opportunity, maybe he recognized, no, I came here as a captive. But God always intended for me to have this as my mission field. And in the midst of this, which I would have never chosen, he has used me and he has prospered this nation and me. And he has had plans to prosper me, to give me a hope and a future right here, right now. Because God's up to something. Okay, I'm out of time, but I gotta tell you this one too. What if there was another subplot as well? What if there was another story Daniel didn't even know about? Because 500 years later, there would be a little Messiah born in Bethlehem the king of the Jews, and magi, wise men from the east, see his star and come to visit him. How would these wise men know anything about a future Messiah? Except that maybe when Daniel was the chief magician and over all the wise men, he says, I'm going to tweak the curriculum just a little bit. And we're going to teach Hebrew scriptures and prophecies and the Torah. And 500 years later, the reason they came was because Daniel was there. And the reason that Mary and Joseph would have the money and the gold to be able to go to Egypt to save the life of the Messiah was because Daniel had been taken from Do you see how it all works together? It's because God's hand was orchestrating all of this. When I was a kid, my dad would pick up his guitar and he would sing this old hymn. I don't ever remember singing this in church, but he sang it in our den all the time. Tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long. It goes on, then it gets to the refrain. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. God is at work. Years before all this happened, Joseph had been sold into slavery in Justice Romans, or Genesis 50, verse 20. He says to them years later, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's the invisible hand of God always at work, even in the Babylons. And for us, that beautiful verse out of Romans 8, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Listen, if God could take the injustice and the horror of the cross and turn it around for the good redemption of all humanity, could he not also take our Babylons and bring it around goodness for the kingdom of God, 
for us and for his glory. God is up to something in Babylon. And we can trust him. Doesn't mean it's easy. But it means there's meaning and there's purpose. And we can be resilient. I want to close by reading the rest of that serenity prayer because there's a part of it that most never get to that is so beautiful. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, taking this world as it is and not as I would have it. Listen to this. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. The sovereign hand of our God is at work even in our darkest nights, our deepest valleys, our Babylons, bring about his purposes for our good, for our future.